We are in a series at the moment titled Kingdom Mandates from the Mount. And uh, last week we concluded the Beatitudes and the last thing we read was the idea of being salt and light. And uh, so we talked about how those Beatitudes, when all on display, actually season the world around us. And our life actually seasons the world. And we actively demonstrate and we announce what the kingdom of God is all about by the way we live those things out. And therefore, we become salt and we become light to the world around us. We often talk about it just as a mission type idea, but the mission of the church is to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And it is to to invite everyone everywhere and alert them of the universal reign of Christ and invite them to come under his reign. So uh, the kingdom mandates the, 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 is a real important way of, of actually understanding that. So we are going to get into the Word of God today. We're going to continue on to something slightly different today by reading on as we continue on here. So we're going to start from verse 17 of chapter 5 and uh, we've got to cover some interesting ground today. Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tr- truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. This is big. This is a really big verse. We know that Jesus has already come and he has declared a new kingdom. We know that he has called people to repent and believe the good news, the gospel of this kingdom. We know that to repent and to believe was a call to completely switch allegiances and agendas. We know the Sermon on the Mount is a short version of a longer teaching about the way that this kingdom operated. Scholars believe the Sermon on the Mount probably took days to deliver, not the 12 minutes we take to read it. This is Matthew giving us the study notes. This sermon at this point, even just with the Beatitudes, would no doubt already be generating big questions. The Beatitudes could to some sound utopian enough to not need the Old Testament anymore, the Mosaic Law anymore, the first two thirds of our Bibles anymore. There were extremists among the Jews who did in fact consider the law to be too much of a millstone around their necks, something impossible to keep up. Why bother having it? There was also a bunch of Pharisees probably nearby who were no doubt looking for how Jesus would interact with it. He's already shown in a few instances that he had a slightly different take on its interpretation than they did. So they'd be paying good attention to what Jesus was saying here. To them, the law and the prophets, the law being the first five books of the the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, the stuff that Moses wrote, the prophets being the rest of the Old Testament, the gathered writings, 
the prophetic work, the poetry, the history. This was the backbone, particularly the law, the backbone of the Hebrew existence. And now that Jesus is on the scene, for the Pharisees, all this talk of a new kingdom is making them a bit nervous. It's fair to suggest that a question almost everyone was asking, now that Jesus has been teaching for about a year, one of the questions was going to get around like this, is following Jesus and the kingdom going to come at the expense of the law and the prophets? Let me put it in a 21st century context. Does all that Old Testament stuff go completely out the window or do we stick to it? In response to all that speculation, Jesus makes some very tough statements. And there is massive gravity to what he is saying here. His first promise is that he is not going to abolish it. He's not going to overthrow it, no nullifying, no rendering it useless. Jesus, who is the living word, knew full well what that law said. But more importantly, he knew why it was said. And with all that in mind, he states that his ministry is going to fulfill those words. He was there when it was spoken. He saw the lips that spoke it. And he was going to bring this complete accomplishment. He was going to carry this law out to the full. That is a heavy statement for one man to make. He has to be more than one man because of this statement. There was a governing body of elders in Israel who deliberated extensively about the way the law was to be fulfilled and lived out. There was a group called the Sanhedrin. We talk about them being persecutors in Acts, but these were 70 of the most brilliant minds, wisest minds in Israel, who would pour their whole lives into understanding the Old Testament and how it would be lived out and how it would be fulfilled. And even they collectively could never make such a haughty statement. Because in human terms, this could not be done. This was an impossible task, Jesus was saying. To completely fulfill the law and the prophets, here's what had to happen. First, all that Old Testament prophetic literature, which pointed to a Messiah, would need to occur. Everything that was written about the Messiah to come, the anointed one to come, would have to come to pass. And frankly, in the scheme of things, that was the easy bit. For most of that to take place, Jesus had to be born and raised in the right time and right place. But then he had to master every part of the Mosaic law. Something that the Pharisees were doing their best at, but coming up short. He had to uphold every rule in it. It's been estimated there's more than 2,000 pieces of legislation in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's not just holding up the Ten Commandments. It's deeper times 200, I think. He would have to uphold these in the highest standard. 
in complete undeviated obedience and observation down to the minute detail. He would need to uphold the feasts, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices, and eventually, to fulfill it, he would need to become that last thing. Our very salvation depends not just on Jesus getting on the cross, suffering and declaring things finished, but living till his mid-30s in complete perfection in the eyes of that law. The one who invites us into complete allegiance to a new kingdom is going to make that possible by completely fulfilling the needs of the old way. It's interesting to note that not one part of God's word previously spoken is overridden by Christ. Not once does he apologise or distance himself from the God of the Old Testament or the things that were written. For him, this is still the perfect will of his Father on display. Instead, the revelation of God that the Old Testament provided was being made fuller or being fully accomplished by the ministry of Christ. Even the big thing Jesus is known for, the great commandment, love God, love each other, is essentially Jesus repeating a Levitical command. Jesus' promise here is that this will continue. Not even the smallest detail of God's law is going to disappear until its purpose is achieved. That's a big statement at the end there. In the old King James, it says, not a jot or a tittle of the law will go unfulfilled. In the Greek, not one iota or korea. Not the smallest Hebrew letter form or the smallest letter stroke of the law will go unaccomplished. In other words, God's going to dot his eyes, cross his T's. We know that elements of the Old Testament were completely fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, most notably the work of the cross. We have just remembered that at communion. Hebrews 10 tells us that the Old Testament call for animal sacrifice was fulfilled when Jesus paid in blood once for all for man's sin. The Old Testament call for the death of either an animal or person for their wicked ways was fulfilled with the death of Jesus and the punishment that the law called for was placed on him. The actions of Jesus satisfied every requirement the law demanded for sin to be atoned for and for man to be released from that debt. This atonement was done in our place and our righteous state can only be credited to us through faith. We know from the Old Testament that our wickedness arouses God's anger, but Romans reveals Christ was willing to endure the outpouring of wrath in our place. The Old Testament had a designated priesthood who would intercede and sacrifice for the people. But at the cross, this was fulfilled and the torn veil in the temple signified the start of something new. Christ is our great high priest. He is the sacrifice. He, continue, he has interceded for us to the Father. And then there is an extension of what 1 Peter calls as a priesthood of all believers, which was the Baptist movement is built on. The Old Testament called for actions in God's people that anticipated the work of Christ. Once it was realised, it was fulfilled. Today we live in celebration of those things rather than anticipation.
2, in Colossians 2, Paul writes this, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard for a religious festival, a new boon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. And the reality, however, is found in Christ. So all those things, that were those, those ceremonial elements of the law, the things that they were called to observe, were actually anticipating what Jesus would do. Paul also gives an interesting lesson about our new faith and how it pertains to the law. Galatians 3 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, and notice the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants, rather to his child, and that of course means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be cancelled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise, for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a result, as a promise. Why was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designated to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. A mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us a new life, we would be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. The scriptures declare, that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament declares that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom, which was before the law, by believing in Jesus Christ. There was a promise made long before the law of Moses was established. It was a promise to raise up a people separated to himself. We know that Abraham became the physical patriarch of a nation who was intended to put the glory of God on display throughout the world. This nation would birth God's saviour for mankind. That saviour made a way for not just the nation, but all of humanity become that separated people. If, you know, if you've done the elementary study part one, you'll know that, that, that Genesis points to all the nations of the earth being blessed through the ministry, through the, through the life and the descendants of Abraham, right? In between the promise and the realisation of that, we read about the measuring rod of the Lord. This is what the Hebrew Mosaic law is. But it was coupled with the hope of many prophetic voices. The moral standard of God is eternal, but ceremonial and legal penalties were paid for through the Saviour. Did the realised Saviour remove the measuring rod? Did the Old Testament go out the window? Does the moral law of God disappear? That's the thought behind Paul's question to the Galatians. Is there a conflict between the law and the promise? As we look at the words of Christ in his passage and what he says, he says, no, there is not. If you go into Romans 3, 
Paul would make himself clearer. Do we nullify the law, nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You see, in the now kingdom, when we got saved, we became in the kingdom, in the now kingdom as we know it. Jesus filled the immediate and necessary gaps of the law that man could not. He kept the integrity of the prophets by doing what the Lord said through them. In the kingdom to come, we will see that every part of the law and every part of the prophets would indeed come to pass. Because some things are still yet to come. In the end, under the new kingdom way, our faith alone would be enough to be in right standing with the holy God that the law introduces us to. As Jesus points out in our passage this morning, there still is a call for kingdom disciples to embrace the eternal qualities of the law of the Lord. An ongoing call to uphold the moral standard that the law of the Lord gives us. And that's found in the second half of that passage we've just read. See, after he's done explaining his position regarding the law and the prophets, Jesus then turns his attention to ours. promise made to Abraham to birth a people who are a blessing to the nations continues. This happens spiritually through the kingdom followers of the realised promise. That blessing to the nations would be a righteous standard of the Lord that we stand for. A few weeks ago we learnt this, that we are made righteous before God. And this is because we live in the kingdom. We live in the place of the unhindered and ungrieved spirit. And we are empowered to live righteously because of that. Once this occurs, our task is to go into the world and lead others to that same position before God. To come under the universal reign of Christ. That mandate was given to Israel. They didn't quite get it. And it's been given to the children of the new covenant who have been grafted into that. Us. The God of the Old Testament who is righteous and holy is still the God that we are presenting to the nations. The God of the Old Testament who is loving yet still sees sin seriously is the one who we need to be presenting to the nations. The commandments which were spoken to Moses and verified and built upon by Christ need to be brought to the world around us. The moral standard of God, the moral standard, the holiness of God and his expectation of what holiness looks like needs to be communicated. The moral line of right and wrong, the holy and righteous living that the Old Testament calls for still applies in believers today. We can't just go and do whatever we feel like and go, you know what? No, we still uphold the moral law of God. Loving God, loving our neighbour are still good things. Adultery, stealing, lying, murder, idolatry are still sinful things. We know that because the Old Testament tells us. And we know it also because the New Testament backs it up. To ignore anything God commands, regardless of the testament it comes from, is to undermine its authority of God in our life. 
And Jesus gives us a good measure here. The things which are unfulfilled remain intact. If their promise, if their purpose is still valid, it still remains. And just as Jesus is, has his audience getting their mind around that, bearing in mind they had more time to process it than we do, he then throws in another curveball. Keep living your lives according to the righteous standard laid out in the law. In other words, if you are in the kingdom, you still uphold the kingdom things. You'll be least, if you, you up, you've got to uphold those standards. That's what he says. But I want you to do it a little bit different to the Pharisees. If you're going to uphold the righteousness of the Lord, do it different to them. How? I want your righteousness to exceed theirs. Now, we've got a bit of a negative connotation about Pharisees. That wasn't quite so present. Yeah, they were kind of harsh. They were understood as harsh, but they were also understood as the authority. There would have been a sense of despair. Is that even possible, Jesus, for our righteousness to exceed a Pharisee? They'd watch the Pharisees. They saw the regular and very loud prayer times. They saw the hyper-devotion that they displayed and demanded in everyone else. They felt the constant gaze of these men who were aggressively making sure no one put a foot wrong. If a farmer was a minute late in the field on the eve of the Sabbath, there'd be a Pharisee going, get off the field. You know what the law says about not keeping the Sabbath? You'll die. Get off. If a Galilean shook hands with a foreigner after selling some fish, pleasure doing business with you. He'd have to go and bathe before worship. And even if there was no handshake, technically he'd handle the dead thing. Go and bathe. The come as you are to God attitude that the gospel promotes, or should, was not present in Pharisee thought. The Pharisees laboured to extensively define the law of Moses for the common man. And they graciously took those 2,000 legislations and got them down to 400, sorry, 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. You learn one every day. And they were very vocal about keeping every single one. That's grace. So on the surface, being more righteous than a Pharisee was going to be a really difficult task. To Jesus' audience, it wasn't humanly possible to be that way. How can, you know what, have you ever looked at a Christian going, how could I ever be equal to that? They're so high and mighty, they live so righteously, they've got this, they, on, the, on the surface, those guys look unattainable, how can I ever be like that? That's how these Jews were feeling with the Pharisees, looking at these people going, those are the people who kind of, you know, they've got their, their, they, they must be, they walk so tall, they've got their head in the clouds, they must know God face to face. Look how they live. 
I'll never be like that. In fact, they remind me often that I'll never be like that. But that was Jesus' point. You never will be like that. In fact, you'll be different. He's not making righteousness an impossible task. He's making it far more possible than the disciples had ever heard before. Jesus knew the heart of these Pharisees. And he knew that their faith was skin deep. A lot of their behaviour was on the surface. They had formal obedience. They had outer expression. They made a loud noise. They gave a good show. They had a good sense of knowledge about God. But Jesus' constant judgment of them that there was nothing going on inside. Because ultimately the old covenant way could only deal with the external understanding of sin. What I've done gets atoned for. What's really going on in my heart? Well, that's for another sacrifice down the track. The righteousness that Jesus called for here was not going to excel because of quantity or degree or by looking better. It was going to excel because it was a totally different kind of righteousness. It was inward. It would reflect a genuine heart knowledge of God. It was something that operated from a godly mind and motivation and a God-given heart righteousness that surpassed surface righteousness that Pharisees knew. It was something much, much deeper because Jesus got right down to the work of Christ, cleanses from the inside out and even gets down to our very iniquity, the innermost workings of us and the blood was shed to save us from that as much as what we did on the external. It was a righteousness that was actually predicted in the law and the prophets. Something for the church age, Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. A new covenant, a new way of knowing God, a new way of understanding his law and a new power to live it out. That's what the new way was all about. That's what Jesus brings in for us. We have a righteousness that can exceed a Pharisee because it goes much deeper than what a Pharisee ever knew. And we have an inner change that changes us right down to the core of our being. And we got it through faith. We cannot earn any part of that. And Jesus is the fulfiller of the requirements for that. I'm going to come to a close. I'm going to give you a few little tips because I want you to engage with your Old Testaments. In recent years, we've been seeing the emergence of a movement called Red Letter Christians. 
Anybody heard that phrase? Red letter Christian. Even just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with someone about something Jesus said. I'm going, we can't ignore that. That's the red letters. If you've got a, a Bible with the words of Christ in red, you'll know what I mean. Tony Campolo, people like that are kind of champions of that course. And originally it was birthed out of um, trying to counteract the American evangelical movement where they get overly political and start focusing on all the hot button issues, the hot potatoes, and seem to ignore a lot of the things that Jesus actually really highlighted in his teaching, justice, mercy, that sort of stuff. If you think the antithesis of Trump, that's probably what the red letters stand for. But I've found in church life that we all tend to be red-letter Christians in some way. We are very familiar with our New Testaments, far more so than the old. And I think that's a little bit to our detriment. For the old makes, helps us make sense of the new. He completed that first two-thirds of our Bibles. And he had a take on how to live that out. And we get a new power to live those things out, the moral law of God, because of, of what Christ did. So I'm going to give you, I've really, I've, a recent study, a study said that 85% of all Christians have not taken a full reading journey through the Bible. Alright, you can actually get through the entire Bible, I've been told, two chapters a day and five on a Sunday. That's a good year's reading plan. If we engage with the Old Testament like the Scarlet Thread did, we can actually see some great things that point us to Jesus if we know what we're looking for. So I'm going to give you a couple of quick guidelines and I'll get the band up because we'll worship after this. But This sets the ground for the sermons to come. Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law and next week he's actually going to, we're going to start addressing elements of the law and how Jesus has a take on how we live that out today. But today I just want to leave you a few tips. If you want to know how to read the Old Testament in a Christian lens, here's a few basic ones. One, see God's heart. Alright, if you read the Old Testament and you look at the heart of God, you'll see that there is love. When he made us, he said it was good. There is deep sadness at man's failure. There is the constant desire to redeem. And before any punishment is handed down, there is heaps and heaps and heaps of warning beforehand. There is a continual threat of God's faithfulness to his people. Even when they stray, he's still at work bringing them back again. God's heart is written throughout the whole Old Testament. Look for it. See the holiness of God. This is the what, and the heart is the why. The law was put in place to show the people this trait. In his holiness, sin is not tolerated and cannot stand defiantly in his presence. I will do what I want, God. Good luck with that. Sin always calls for atonement. In the Old Testament, there was sacrifice. In the New Testament, there is Christ. Words like detestable and other words to describe sinful actions of men are actually deliberately chosen words. The Pharisees, both then and now in the church, because they're out there, I've been guilty of being one myself, 
you can't actually describe a Pharisee without at least being one. Truth. Pharisees see the second point, but ignore the first. We get the holiness, but we ignore the heart. There is the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law leaves the picture. Why did God tell us not to steal, lie and steal? Because his heart was for us to trust each other and be trusting of him. Whenever there is thrift, whenever there is loss, there is a breakdown of trust. Why did he tell us not to commit adultery so that his heart for families could be preserved and not be harmed? Why did he call for the Sabbath? To help us keep priorities in order. To ensure worship took place, but also to ensure that man got a rest. He actually sanctified a day so that we could put our feet up. To chill, to relax. There is a clear picture of God's holiness, but not without his heart equally as clear. See, the hope that comes from God throughout the, all of the Old Testament is a promise of Christ. God's holiness would ultimately call for his once-for-all sacrifice, which would atone for the sins of all mankind. God's heart was to make relationship and fellowship with him an unrestricted reality. This hope, this promise, this, this, this relationship began in Eden. Unfortunately, that intimate fellowship was cut off, but the hope still remained. I'm still going to put things right. As early as Genesis 3, we see the promise of that starting to come together. It was pointed to us as the burning pot consumed Abram's sacrifice. It was pointed at the, sacri- at the Passover. It was pointed to at the scarlet cord on the Jericho wall at Rahab's window. We've got the story of Hosea who was called to remarry an adulterous bride. He's a subject of prophecy throughout the Psalms through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, right through to Malachi. The hope is found in all its pages. And finally, filter that through the words of Christ in our passage today. If it's clearly fulfilled in the ministry of Christ, reflect on that with thankfulness. Some parts are pretty clear, some not so. You'll have to work through that a bit, form your own convictions. If it has clearly not been, stick to the plan till further notice. You'll come across some tough questions on the way. Hopefully those pointers will help you engage with the Old Testament just a little bit more than perhaps you have been. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to close this off in prayer and then I'm going to let us continue to worship.